today on Truth Encounter, we will discuss this ultimate literary work of art on love. A single man penned the words, and his revelation took love far beyond the ecstasy of sexual fulfillment, to the bedrock that all other loves must build upon. I'm sure you have guessed the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's open our Bibles to this classic as our study leader Dave Wurtzen reminds us of our ultimate priority. The Apostle Paul has written under the inspiration of God probably the most beautiful passage that's ever been written on love. It's one of those portions of scripture that when an interpreter begins to explain it, it's like uh, an analyst of art who begins to analyze and pull apart maybe a Michelangelo or a beautiful sculpture. And so I like to begin our time of 1 Corinthians 13 to just read the section so that all of us get this, this beautiful exposition by the Apostle Paul clearly before us. We'll also give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to just speak to some of our hearts just directly from the inspired text. Only Christ has these kind of attributes as just part of his being. Dave Wurtzen in himself is not this kind of a loving individual, and either are you, but by a gift of God's grace and the gift of God's character living within us, we have Jesus, we have his patience, his kindness, his ability to forgive. And I want us to remember that because I think it's easy to read 1 Corinthians 13 and to become very discouraged and begin to feel like, boy, I can think of so many instances even this week where I didn't measure up. The issue is not measuring up. The issue is allowing Jesus to live these attributes through us. Love is the first fruit of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I'll begin with the closing verse of verse 12. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues or the languages of men and the languages of angels... But if I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, inspired revelation, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the gift of faith that I can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, even surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I am nothing. Love acts patiently. Love acts in kindness. Love does not act in jealousy. It does not brag. It is not proud. It does not vaunt itself. It doesn't act rudely or shamefully, and it's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It's not easily angered. It does not keep a record of the wrongs that are done against it. Love never delights in evil, never delights when someone else falls into wickedness or evil. But instead, it rejoices together with the truth. Love always endures. Another feel of that is in the NIV, love protects. But love always bears up in difficult circumstances. It always believes, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never falls. It never falters. But where there are prophecies, they will falter. They will cease or they'll be abolished. 
Where there are tongues or where there are languages, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And all of us are living on this side of eternity in that childlike time of spiritual understanding of God. When I became a man, I put away childish ways and I put them behind me. Now today, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Christ never fails. Christ is patient. He's kind. He never acts in enviousness or jealousy. Christ is the one that helps us to live out this kind of, an, of a reality. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and what we've been learning from him. Father, we are reminded as we think of the evangelistic responsibility that we have of the fact that you told us in your word in John that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples because you love one another. Heavenly Father, 1 Corinthians 13 is the most thorough explanation of what it means for us to love one another and therefore have this fundamental activity that's such an important part in having an impact upon the unbelieving world. And so, Father, I just would ask you that you would take the study and the prayer that I've spent with you this past week, and I pray that you would help me to be able to be very calm, to be very relaxed, and be very clear about what your Holy Word is saying in this immaculate chapter. Most of all, Father, I would ask you that we would get completely by the, the individual that's speaking and that your Holy Spirit would be able to convict and encourage and touch every one of our lives. Father, there's some marriages that are hurting because these kind of attributes are not the everyday reality of their relationship together. Father, there's also a need to understand 1 Corinthians 13 in the context of the book and not to isolate it as we often do in just as a beautiful poem or a beautiful lyric. I'd ask you that we would understand it first of all in the context of Corinthians and then that your Spirit of God would drive it home to us as we live this week. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is one of those portions of scripture that is probably the most famous passage like John 3.16, uh, like John 1.12, but it's often a portion of scripture that's read in a context that's different from the book of 1 Corinthians. In other words, we don't realize that it comes in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. We also don't relate, we don't relate it back to chapter 1 through chapter 11. When we do that, when we rip it out of its context, we begin to lose some of the immediacy of what the Apostle Paul was getting at. When we think of some of the problems the Corinthian church were having, divisions, there was a tremendous problem of rejecting the authority of the Apostle Paul. 
There were people that were irritated with him. They were angry with him. They were upset. There was also a large number in the group that were very proud of their spiritual achievements. They were very much enthralled with their ability to do supernatural things. So much so that they would look upon themselves as being better than some of the other family members. When you put all of that input into 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you realize that it was especially written to meet the needs of a specific local church family that was wrestling with some temptations from the evil one that could tear that church family apart, that could tear our personal lives apart. What we'd like to do as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today is to try to put it into its original context and then to be able to apply it into the kind of a life that we're living together in our own church family. Paul begins with, in, verse, in chapter 13 with verses 1 through 3 by explaining to the Corinthians that love is the superior reality. Love is that ultimate priority in the spiritual life. Every one of us, as we think of our life with Christ, need to answer the question, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to be like? The Corinthians answered that question, what is spirituality, with these words. Spirituality is being able to give supernatural revelation. It's being able to gather with the Corinthian church and have the Holy Spirit powerfully come upon somebody, have them stand up and either speak in a human language or speak in a heavenly language, depending upon, the interpret, depending upon how you interpret what was happening in Corinthians. And they viewed that as the ultimate statement, this person is a woman of God. This person is a man of God. They also gave great, great credence to the ability that someone had to have inspired insight into the great mysteries of the faith. For example, if somebody knew about the rapture and knew about the teaching that the church would be raptured out of this world, that Jesus Christ would come back in the clouds of heaven according to 1 Thessalonians or according to 1 Corinthians 15, if they knew that great mystery, it was given them as an insight from the Holy Spirit that automatically meant that they were spiritual. Another thing they put a great deal of stress upon was the gift of oratory, like Apollos came and ministered among them for a time. And Apollos was a great polished speaker. He could hold an audience in the palm of his hand. He was the Jesse Jackson of oratory of the first century world. He was a great vocalist, a great speaker that would just captivate an audience with all the oratorical tradition of Alexandria and Egypt. The Corinthians liked that, but they began to put it up on a pedestal. They began to compare Apollos with the Apostle Paul. Some compared Paul and Apollos with Peter. Remember that from the early chapter of the book of Corinthians. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says to the Corinthians, my loved children, the ones that I was used by the Holy Spirit to bring into the spiritual world, to be born again into God's family. You need to get your eyes on what's really important. Children have a hard time appreciating what's valuable. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul appeals to all of us as children, and he says this is valuable. 
And he begins by pointing out to the Corinthians that their most favorite gift, the gift that they thought was the ultimate expression of spirituality, was not. If I speak in the languages of men and of angels. I believe that we should put it in the context Paul just talked about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's going to return in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 to a discussion of the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues or the gift of languages. In Acts chapter 2, the gift of languages was the ability to speak foreign languages that they had not studied. Elamite, Akkadian, the different dialects of Greece, Latin, different languages that were represented by the Jewish diaspora. When Paul mentions that they could speak the languages of men and of angels... The, uh, the phrase end of angels raises an interpretive problem which I'm not sure that we can really get the answer to. But there are those that held that there was a gift of tongues which involved what was done in Acts chapter 2. But there's also a gift of languages which were the languages of heaven. And some of the evidence for that in rabbinic literature, for example, in the Testament of Job, there's a rabbinic passage that talks about Job's daughters being able to speak an angelic language, the language of heaven. There's also the story in rabbinic literature of a rabbi who was so wise that he understood the language of heaven. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and, and through the end of the book, the Apostle Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven and hearing inexpressible sounds. I think to be fair, although usually I would lean towards the view that this is hyperbole, speaking with the languages of men and of angels is speaking of, speaking eloquently. In the context of 1 Corinthians 13, especially with this discussion of the spiritual gift of tongues in chapter 12, I think that we need to think of it to the Corinthians as being the gift, this inspired revelatory gift. In the Corinthian church, there were those that had the gift of inspired revelation that was revealed in the ability to speak languages that they had not studied, and possibly, I don't think, I wouldn't go to the stake for it, but possibly they did speak an angelic language. It was not an ecstatic gibberish. It was not something that was out of control, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is able to tell them to be silent, that they can control it. It's not some kind of an ecstasy which causes someone to go into a trance. But it is a special revelatory gift from the Holy Spirit. At any rate, what's very clear in this passage is that the Apostle Paul says, even if you are able to speak the language of, of heaven, and by the way, the rabbinic literature held that Hebrew was the language of heaven, and all of us Old Testament majors appreciate that. Maybe that is what's going to be the language of heaven. And maybe that is what the angels speak. When the angels do speak in the word of God, they either speak in Hebrew or they speak in Greek because those are the languages dominantly that the scripture was written in. And so what that angelic language is, only God knows. What I do know for sure is this. If I don't do those gifts with love, if I exercise those gifts with superiority, with a sense that I'm more spiritual and I've got a deeper hold of the Holy Spirit than someone else, it means nothing. Now that's not debatable. The tragedy of the charismatic church, which so many of you are aware of, is that some brothers and sisters in that movement 
exercise that gift to the hurt and to the destruction and to the confusion of others. That is not a spiritual thing to do. It's very clear from 1 Corinthians that someone in the Corinthian church in the first century that had this gift, that exercised it in pride and just to meet their own selfish needs, that was the issue the Apostle Paul was speaking to. Charismatic friends who disagree with me about when this gift ceased and they still believe it's operating today, those friends that listen carefully to 1 Corinthians will never cause a serious problem in a church family because their ultimate objective will be the same as my ultimate objective, the same as yours, and that is to have a Christ-like love. The tragedy of Satan is that he's constantly trying to get us to be imbalanced. And Paul is appealing to the Corinthian believers and he appeals to us. Even if you have this unbelievable, angelic, heavenly spiritual gift of revelation, the ability to speak in languages, if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Then he turns to the gift of prophecy, which is his favorite which is the gift that he holds should be given the priority in the Corinthian church. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and I have all knowledge, here he's talking about the gift of inspired, intelligible speech. The gift of tongues is the gift of inspired, uh, unintelligible speech that needs to be interpreted. The prophetic gift is the ability to speak in the language of the congregation that the Corinthians, the probably Greek, which dominant, was dominantly spoken in the Corinthian church. It was the ability to receive an inspired message from the Lord and give that prophecy for the encouragement, for the consolation of the group. The gift of mystery, to understand or fathom all mysteries, is a good explanation of what prophecy was. To fathom mystery, that's not like a Sherlock Holmes mystery, but it is the ability to understand the hidden wisdom and plan of God. For example, there's no way that a human being could realize that God would change from working exclusively with the Jewish nation in the Old Testament and he would begin with the coming of his son to weld together Greeks and Israelites together, Gentiles and Israelites together, and make them one new group called the church. There's also no way you could know 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. No scientist could ever discover in his own thinking process through his own interpretation or insight into life that Jesus would return and marvelously transform us and take us home. Those are spiritual mysteries. Those are the things that we could only know as God reveals them to us and the gift of a prophet was to be able to do exactly that. And that's what we're able to read in the Holy Scripture. Can you imagine the eminence of someone who received the moving of the Spirit in his life so that he could declare for the very first time to God's people about the rapture or about the very first time about the body of Christ and understand all knowledge 
The Corinthians prided themselves about knowledge, and we've been able to teach about knowledge. Remember, we were able to learn about the idolatrous system and the demonic activity that was behind that. There's no way that I could tell you about demonic activity behind idols unless it was, in, it was inspired from the Word of God. The Corinthians had prophets who could give that kind of teaching from a direct gift from the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, even if you're able to do all of that, you're able to receive this direct divine revelation. If you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, it can be very destructive. So he goes from these revelatory gifts, dominantly speaking gifts, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of understanding mysteries and having all knowledge, we're speaking gifts. So I think we could apply it in our lives today. Even if I can speak like D.L. Moody, like Billy Graham, if I don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. I think of a young seminary student in my own life, when you're getting your training, you look up at some of the great, great communicators of the faith. Prof. Hendricks was my, uh, you know, the person I wanted to be like. He moved in my life, was used by the spirit of my life as a young kid. I remember hearing Prof. Hendricks get up before like Sunday school conventions and being able to hold those conventions in the palm of his hand and see him powerfully used by the Holy Spirit. It's easy for a young man to begin to say, if I can do that, then I will have it. If I can speak like that. You know, it's possible to speak and to be able to give all that kind of teaching and to do it without love. Instead, to be motivated by pride. And that's an area that I want you to be in prayer for me because pride is a vicious thing. It takes you from a, an, a feeling of exhilaration. It takes you from a feeling of, look how great I am, to the pits of despair. And I find it's a very powerful force within me. In other words, if it seems like things are going well, if it seems like the, the teaching of God's word is reaching people's hearts and it's building you up, then it's easy to feel elated and for it to be pride. Look what I've done. But then a word of criticism can come and it can turn around just like that. And for several days you can be in the pits of despair. And all that is the vicious cycle of doing it for pride. And no pastor is immune from that. And I'm certainly not. And what Paul is reminding us, he says, Dave, and he says to every one of you, speaking, communicating the truths of God, meeting people's needs through the teaching of God's inspired word, even if you can do it effectively, is not the ground of the spiritual life. It needs to be done with the desire to express the love of Christ and to express love for others. It is a strategic check on our behavior to ask these simple but most important questions. Am I acting in patience and kindness? What about my jealousy, boastfulness, and pride? Do I find myself easily becoming angry keeping careful mental records of those I feel have wronged me? Am I tenelated by the next piece of gossip over someone else's sin, or do I rejoice more in truth, faith, and hope? These are the checklist questions to discern whether or not true love is operative in our lives. I hope you will be able to join us for the conclusion of this study on the ultimate priority 
on our next Truth Encounter as Dave is going to carefully sketch out each of Paul's statements about love and then focus our attention on the individual who can generate these qualities in our personal lives.